Matante. This is Mark Scarborough, and this, as you well know, is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that is continuing to walk with Dante all the way up into Purgatorio. We're into the middle third. Close to the middle third of Purgatory itself. We are on the first terrace after the official gate of Purgatory. We have seen two carved reliefs in the marble of the mountain, the unscalable marble of the mountain, the Annunciation, and then a scene with King David. And now we're about to get a third carving. This one, the Pilgrim Dante finds on his own without a prompt from Virgil. Let's look at lines 70 through 93 of Canto 10 of Purgatorio. This is my English translation. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. Getting very sing-song because I say that so much, but there you go. You can find it there. You can read along or you can continue the conversation with me. In any event, we're going to get to the passage. I moved on a few steps from where I stood to take a close look at another bit of history. I saw it gleaming white beyond Michael. Here was told a story of the high glory from the Roman prince whose great valor pushed Gregory to his tremendous victory. I'm talking about the emperor Trajan and the poor widow who stood at his bridal. She was the embodiment of weeping and sorrow. The ground beneath them seemed to have been trodden down by the crowd of knights. In the air, even the golden eagles seemed to move about on the wind. In the middle of all of that our miserable woman seemed to say, My lord, make a vendetta for my son who was murdered. He's the reason I'm stuck in grief. And he replied to her, Hang tight for now until I get back. And like a person whose grief is overwhelming, she said, My lord, what if you don't come back? And he, the one who will stand in my place, will do it. And she, what's the purpose of someone else's goodness if you've already forgotten it yourself? And he, now comfort yourself. For it appears I have to fulfill my obligation to you before I can move on from here. Justice wills it so, and compassion reigns me in. Now there's a bit of absurdity, a scene so real that an entire dramatized conversation written out almost in dialogue like a modern play erupts from the marble. The realism claims are getting more outrageous in this passage, and we have Trajan and Pope Gregory the Great in the passage. So much to talk about. Let's get to it. Let's first start with the players in this passage. We have first the Emperor Trajan, and he is named in the passage. He is the Roman Emperor born about 53 Common Era and died in 117 Common Era. He was Emperor from 98 to 117. He is known for two specific, maybe even more, two specific war campaigns, the Dacian campaigns and the Parthian campaigns. He's headed off here to one of those campaigns. He was succeeded by Hadrian in the Roman Empire and for a long time throughout the Middle Ages. Trajan was seen as almost a Christian figure. He was not, but almost a Christian figure because of his codification of Roman law, because of his seemingly straightforward interest in justice, in legal codes, 
in creating a more just Roman Empire. For all these reasons, he was almost unanimously lauded by thinkers, theologians, scholars, philosophers, and even common folk in the Middle Ages, at least common folk who would have known about Roman emperors. He is one of the few Roman emperors who escape all condemnation. Another of the great stories about Trajan told on his life in the centuries after his death is this one about a widow whose son is killed in Trajan's own wars and who seems to demand some kind of justice out of the Roman emperor here standing holding his bridle. This story is oft repeated. It's almost impossible to say exactly where Dante got this story from because there are so many sources and even artistic representations of it. None, however, so so dramatic as this intaglio that apparently includes dramatic dialogue. He said that Trajan gives Gregory the tremendous victory that Pope Gregory the Great. He was Pope from 590 Common Era to 604, so quite a bit after Trajan. Gregory the Great is perhaps the foundational Pope of the Middle Ages. He was canonized almost instantly on his death. You probably know him from such things as Gregorian chant, which he certainly did his best to popularize. But his papal codification of power, his reforms, and his seemingly, uh, what do I want to say, humble, gracious papacy, although there were some problems, but we'll leave those aside for the moment, seem to bring him also, as Trajan, in for general applause by almost everyone. So much so that in the centuries after Gregory died, various legends were written about his life. Perhaps the most famous legend, or certainly the one that bears on this passage, is the notion that Gregory was so impressed with Trajan's righteousness that he, Gregory, could not stand the fact that Trajan would be damned in hell forever. So he, Gregory, prayed so fervently that Trajan came back from the dead, Gregory was able to share the gospel of Christianity with him, Trajan converted, and Gregory gained a great victory. Trajan then died again, and of course then would be on his way at least to purgatory, if not paradise. That whole sequence will come back in comedy to trouble us, but it is sitting underneath this passage. Okay, that's the background to it, but let's talk about that paraphrastic bit and Trajan's naming in the passage. If you remember in previous moments of these reliefs, we've always said that it is done mildly paraphrastically. Mary is not named, but the angel is there. It's not named Gabriel, but you can kind of figure out, especially given the Ave and her response about the handmaid of God, you figure out pretty quickly who these people are. And the next scene, while David is not named, certainly Michel is named, which gives gives us a little hint about what we're talking about here in this passage of the Ark and the Covenant's move and 
Uzzah stretching out his hand and being killed for touching the cart and all that stuff we talked about last time. But this passage seems much more straightforward. Trajan is just named. This is the first scene that is not at least in partial paraphrasis, that is, paraphrastic phrasing, walking around something without naming it outright. As we go through these reliefs in the marble, they get clearer and clearer, more and more certain as to who they are. They become more and more dramatic. We should know all of that. But there's one little niggle here that we should bring up because it's important to see it. The terrace that we're on, this deserted space on Mount Purgatory, is still (laughs) in paraphrasis for us. We don't know what this terrace is about. Now, of course, we have had a read-through of Cantos 10 through 12, and you have probably figured out, and I've probably dropped it enough, to say that this is the terrace of the prideful. But we only know that from having read ahead at this point. Maybe if you looked at three carvings in the marble, you could say, well, there's something here about humility or about keeping your head down, or about standing righteously and doing the right thing without any regard to your personal favor or renown, David jumping around, exposing himself to the public. But we don't have it quite in focus. I know the answer to comedy is that comedy can only be read once it already has been read. So in order to make full sense of this, you have to have already read ahead and know what this is all about. But if you clear the decks and just say, okay, what have we gotten so far? We've gotten through a gate, we've gotten up a tight climb, we've gotten onto a deserted terrace, and we've seen three reliefs carved into the marble. These are various scenes that clearly mean something, but we still don't quite know what this terrace is. So the terrace is still paraphrastically in front of us while the scenes are showing hints about what the sin should be or, as we will, of course, discover as we go forward, what the answer to the sin of pride might be. Let's talk a bit about the conversation between this woman standing at Trajan's bridle and Trajan. She says to him, my lord, make a vendetta for my son who was murdered. He's the reason I'm stuck in grief. And this little word, vendetta, this big word, vendetta, picks up that vendetta thematic from Inferno. Remember we talked about this endlessly, about the vendetta thematics and how vendetta was starting to ruin Italy. And then we get that Jerry Del Bello sequence in Inferno and the question of a personal vendetta comes up and Dante turns aside from his own relative who seems to be trying to get his attention. We talked about this kind of dropping your arms from a vendetta-based society. Well, here that thematic seems to be picked up, and this widow seems to be arguing for some kind of righteous or just vendetta. It's not just that vendetta can ruin society. It can also be a plea for some kind of justice, some kind of redemptive movement making up for a past problem. And here her son was murdered. You'll have to notice that she doesn't blame Trajan for this, but she does seem to put her son's death in the most dire light, murdered. 
Well, guess why? Because he followed Trajan into battle. And Trajan then seems to say, hey, you know, don't worry. I'll come back. I'll deal with you. And this woman just keeps pressing. She keeps saying, no, wait, you can't go away. And Trajan says, well, no, the guy's in my place. He'll take care of it. You know, some guardian of the state while I'm off on my campaigns. Or maybe he's talking about his successor, Hadrian. You know, the guy after me will take care of it. And she says, no, 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 that's no good. You have to make it right. And then, of course, he stops. And you'll notice what he says is justice wills it. And compassion, I translated it as reigns me in or holds me here. In other words, both the widow and Trajan are associated with a bridle. She's hanging on to his bridle. He recognizes that her plea is so dramatic and so right that he is then bridled in order to deal with her. And she is a compelling figure. In fact, she is our third woman in these reliefs. And if you think about it, maybe she functions as some kind of middle ground between the complete submission of the Virgin. You know, I'm the handmaid of God. Do with me as you will. And Michel's haughty, high tragedy disdain in the previous relief. This seems some kind of middle ground. This woman is fully actionable. Michael, kind of actionable. Ultimately, she condemns David, not in the relief, but in the biblical story. We would know that if we were readers of the Bible. She's a bit actionable, but not actually in Dante's telling of it. Mary is, I dare not say this because I feel that I'm putting the virgin down and I may offend you, but given the passage that was there, Mary is not truly actionable. Her response is simply, you know, do with me as you will in a completely submissive move. Now, I realize, of course, that would be a holy move, (laughs) H-O-L-Y, a holy move, especially from a Catholic perspective, but we would have to say there that she's not doing much except accepting what's about to happen to her. This woman is the most actionable in the sequence. She is not only confronting Trajan, which must take a great deal of courage, but she's holding him (laughs) with her hand on his bridle, or at least standing at his bridle. I don't know that she's actually touching it, but still, she's standing right there next to him as he's about to head out to war. This takes a lot of guts. And then not only that, he gives her a response, hang tight for now until I get back, and she keeps pushing it. She keeps saying, what if you don't come back? Hey, you know, smarty pants, you're going off to war. And she then posits his death. You don't posit death to a Roman (laughs) emperor. And he says, okay, well, then somebody else will do what needs to be done. And she still says, hey, what's the good of that? You're the one who's uh, the problem here. You got to bring me justice. And then she finally gets what she wants. She is definitely a middle ground between the Virgin and Michael. We should watch that. Over the course of these um, reliefs, we see an increasing move to actionability without a loss of the central virtue. Just to say, because this lies ahead of us, the central virtue is humility. That is the opposite, as it were, of pride. We see that you can be actionable and still humble. That is a really difficult and interesting ethical stance. 
I want to go back to the front of the passage before I jump to the end of it and talk about the art and talk about the morality in the passage. And I will look at where it talks about history and story. At least this is how I translate it. Starting back at the beginning, I moved on a few steps from where I stood, the pilgrim says, to take a close look at another history. This is the word historia, which I translated as history. There's a little bit of quibble that you could make with me there. You could translate that word as narrative or story. I translated it in a more modern sense of history. Since it's a historical account, I kind of loaded the hand in a certain way. But historia does carry with it a kind of set piece, like this is something that is known. So, Dante says, I saw it gleaming white in that marble beyond Michel. Here was the story. Now, this is another word, storiata. This word is not necessarily something set and maybe well known as historia is. This word indicates much more what we would think in the modern world as a story or the telling of a sequence of acts. It's got a little bit of sequentiality, is that a word? <laughs> a little bit of temporal sequence buried in the notion of what's going on here in the way that historia may be kind of atemporal, something that is known and set up above. There's a little bit of quibble in those definitions, and you should know that many Dante scholars would disagree with what I just said. But Dante is clearly making a difference between historia and storiata. He, of course, is telling a storiata, and he's telling his storiata based on historia. We can go back to all of the discussion we've already had about art is based on what comes before. We can go back to the discussions of how narrative is based on the known, not the unknown. Yet narrative itself attempts to embellish, decorate, even make artful the unknown or the unknowable. It's a lot to hang off two words, but Dante does seem to make a distinction there that we should probably pay attention to. And, you know, hey, what is the difference between these two things? Fundamentally, the difference is words. That is, if historia is kind of a set piece or something known from the past or a bit of history, then the story is a focus on the words themselves. The difference seems to be that the words arise from something previously known, not in the postmodern nihilist stance that the words create something that cannot otherwise be known. Dante seems to be taking an older, more traditional view of storytelling. I say that, of course, knowing the full and complex ironies we've already discussed. Let's talk about this art for a minute. It is super realistic, so realistic, in fact, that the widow and Trajan seem to have this dramatic conversation. Mimesis, or mimetic art, is art that is realistic and attempts to reflect reality. If you um, painted a watercolor at the side of a lake, and let's say you really tried to capture the lake and the color of the sun and the sky and you know, the reflections on the water. This is truly mimetic art, art that is attempting to reflect reality. But this is an imagined conversation. No matter what source Dante got the story of the widow and Trajan from, here he is making up details in this story. And furthermore, he's really making up the set piece because that whole bit about the ground around them seems to be trodden down by a crowd of knights, knights in the Roman Empire, really. Dante is 
adding details here. I mean, Trajan is ready to go, so Dante wants to give it the look, even on the ground of a big war encampment getting ready to set out. Even in the air, the eagles moved about on the wind. I mean, Dante is really letting his imagination fly here with these details, as he did previously, especially with David and the seven choirs and the incense. If art reflects reality and art somehow brings up the actual events themselves, the historia, then what must we say about this journey that Dante is on between Inferno and Paradiso? It is an imagined journey. What we're making the claim here is that great art further stimulates the imagination to fill in the gaps with realistic details, seven choirs, incense, knights, eagles, even this conversation itself, that you have no access to. Just to blow it out from Dante for a minute, I'm thinking here of Cezanne and the way that Cezanne left open spaces in his canvases, as you probably know. And Cezanne's claim was that he wouldn't make a brushstroke that he couldn't account for. And so there are spots, particularly in later Cezanne's paintings, where, you know, you can see the canvas through the paint because there's no brushstroke there to cover the canvas. But what happens in that, and I'm not sure Cezanne intends this, but what does happen is that the viewer fills in the color. I don't mean that you actually fill it in or that you don't see the hole in the painting with the canvas behind it. But I mean, as you cursorily pass by a Cezanne painting, you yourself are kind of filling in the colors. And even as you examine it more closely, you can't help but imagine what color would have gone there. There is no color there. But you yourself are positing what's going on there. And much of Cezanne's art is fairly mimetic. Yeah, of course, it's verging toward Impressionism. And of course, it's getting more abstract and all that stuff. But it is still mountains in southern Provence. It is still scenes in southern Provence. It is still still lifes. I mean, we still are moving in that direction of representing reality, yet with holes in it that you have to fill in. And this seems to be Dante's point. The realism of art calls the artist to further fill in the details here, ground trodden down by knights, golden eagles up in the air, that then further enhance the scene. And you'll notice that once the artist fills in details, I start to fill in more as the reader. I can smell the horses. I can hear their stamping on that trodden ground. I can imagine the ringing of the bells on Trajan's bridle. I can imagine what Trajan looks like. I can hear the wind around him. I'm now adding more and more details because the spur here is that great art pushes the viewer to add more details, pushes the artist to add more details. And then if it's done properly, I continue to imagine details. This is very complicated. Thus enhancing the mimesis, the realism of the scene through my unknowable imagined details. 
Okay, that's a lot of high-ended art theory, so let's end it at a good point right at the end at line 93. Trajan says, justice wills it so, and compassion reigns me in. This will become the crux of the morality for Dante and Purgatorio, the balance between justice and compassion. How do you hold those two together? What we're about to see here in the scene just ahead of us is a moment in which it looks as if justice has outweighed compassion as we as you know because we've had to read through as we see the penitents coming along underneath giant boulders having to carry these things so that they're almost squashed flat against the ground and it seems as if the justice punishing them for their pride is outweighing any compassion as you feel for them as their ankles practically break and their shoulders practically break under the weight of these boulders and this will become Dante's constant concern how to balance justice and compassion while here Trajan tosses it off and says, "Uh, well, okay, I got to stop and not go to battle and I got to deal with you because justice and compassion are holding me here, reining me in. They're checking me. This is going to become the dominant problem in Purgatorio. How do you balance justice with compassion? And you should think about this in your own life. How do you balance what's right with being sensitive to people. I I, I mean, this becomes more and more my problem the older I get, because, of course, I'm prone to shooting my mouth off and telling people what I think. And the older I get, the more I realize that people don't necessarily need to know what I think. And just to say, it becomes an increasingly pressing claim in Purgatorio. Let's read the lines one more time. 7393 of Canto 10 of Purgatorio. I moved on a few steps from where I stood to take a close look at another bit of history. I saw it gleaming white beyond Michel. Here was told a story of the high glory from a Roman prince whose great valor pushed Gregory to his tremendous victory. I'm talking about the Emperor Trajan and the poor widow who stood at his bridle. She was the embodiment of weeping and sorrow. The ground beneath them seemed to have been trodden down by the crowd of knights. In the air, even the golden eagles seemed to move about on the wind. In the middle of all that, a miserable woman seemed to say, My lord, make a vendetta for my son who was murdered. He's the reason I'm stuck in grief. And he replied to her, Hang tight for now until I get back. And like a person whose grief is overwhelming, she said, My lord, what if you don't come back? And he, the one who will stand in my place, will do it. And she What's the purpose of someone else's goodness if you've already forgotten it yourself? And he, now comfort yourself, for it appears I have to fulfill my obligation to you before I can move on from here. Justice wills it so, and compassion reigns me in. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. I hope you will rate this podcast. I hope you will subscribe to it. I hope you'll write a review to it. Writing a review helps the podcast a great deal, no matter what platform you're on and no matter what language you write it in. Thank you for doing that in advance. Thanks for being with me on this walk. I really appreciate some of the comments in the Facebook Walking with Dante group, sometimes as DMs on Instagram, sometimes as DMs on Facebook, and even on my own website, MarkScarborough.com. Thanks for making the journey not just mine, but ours together. And I will see you on ahead in this, the first terrace of Purgatory proper. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you soon. Mm-hmm.